After the great general of the American Revolution, military action was a last resort and nothing more. War should be the exception to American life. He warned in his farewell address to avoid permanent alliances that would drag us into other conflicts. I want an American character that the powers of Europe may be convinced we act for ourselves and not for others, he told his friend Patrick Henry. In today's world, Secretary of State Colin Powell, himself a former general, champions the same view. Like George Washington, he would be at home at Rick's Cafe American. War should be the politics of last resort, he has written, and I believe he means it. Our resistance to foreign entanglements is matched by our resistance to big government. It should be no surprise that the most beloved American political movie, Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, is about rot at the top. Something of a scandal in itself when it opened in 1939, it showed the men running things in Washington as moral eunuchs. Angry senators stormed out of the premier at Constitution Hall. The politically influential Joseph P. Kennedy, father of the future president, was so outraged that he demanded it be yanked from theaters. This fable of youthful idealism, triumphing over aging cynicism, perfectly captures America's mistrust of the ruling elite. We cheer for the gallant young Mr. Smith, who refuses to be licked, even when the entire establishment lines up to destroy him. It was his namesake, Thomas Jefferson, after all, who counseled that a little rebellion now and then was good for the country. The spirit of the rebellious Mr. Smith lives on, in the same way as does the reluctant fighter of Bogey's Rick Blaine. If Secretary Powell can be considered the avatar of Bogey and George Washington, Senator John McCain is the embodiment of the Democratic pugnacity that fueled the indignation of Jimmy Stewart's Jeff Smith. As a defiant POW in North Vietnam, McCain stood up to his captors. As a U.S. Senator, he has fought the corrupt role of money in politics with the same indignation as the celluloid Smith once stirred to action did. There are other distinctly American notions. We have this peculiar penchant for enshrining misfits as heroes. Think of the driven Ethan Edwards, as played by a demonic John Wayne, in The Searchers, or that obsessed loner Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. We love heroes who wouldn't fit in unless they were heroes. Could this be because we as a country don't quite fit in with other countries? Americans are a self-invented people. Here any person has a right to try and become who he or she wants to be. This could explain why The Great Gatsby retains its hold on our collective imagination. Even as it cautions against the grown-up dangers of acting out a youthful fantasy, it enshrines the lore that brings millions of people to this country ready to learn English, change their names, and grab for the brass ring. We Americans love people who have proved themselves in action. This goes for writers as well as presidents. Ernest Hemingway is the great American writer, but not just because of the books he turned out. He was larger than life, certainly larger than anyone else sitting behind a typewriter. He was shot as an ambulance driver on the Italian front in World War I, ran with the bulls in Spain, and hunted big game in East Africa. By force of his life's example, he took the writer's life out of the garret and placed it against a panorama of high adventure. Americans cherish the idea that any regular person can rise even to the country's highest office, if they have the right stuff. Three of our most legendary presidents, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, and Harry Truman had practically no formal schooling. They were common men of uncommon ability, and that was what counts. Americans root for the underdog. 
Oprah Winfrey is a media colossus for a reason. She does more than empathize with wounded people trying to heal themselves. She is someone who has hurt herself but refused to quit. The same unwillingness to stay down is what made Rocky, a movie that had audiences applauding with tears in their eyes. We are a country that will not abandon its pioneer past. The American frontier may be gone, but its spirit lives on. From Daniel Boone in the Kentucky wilderness, to Charles Lindbergh soaring high and alone above the choppy Atlantic, to John F. Kennedy and his daring call to shoot for the moon, we Americans don't like to get anywhere second. We're also a country of unabashed optimism. Even our critics see in us a confidence about our future that sets us apart and that has a way of being self-fulfilling. In some of our darkest times, battling a huge economic crisis at home or military foes overseas, Franklin Roosevelt understood the thirst the American people have for optimism. This great nation will endure as it has endured, he said with perfect confidence that first day from the Capitol steps, will revive and will prosper. FDR was handsomely rewarded for his optimism with an unprecedented four terms as president. Finally, we Americans see ourselves endowed with a special destiny. Even before the Puritans reached landfall, John Winthrop spoke of Massachusetts building a city upon a hill, a role model for all the world. Thomas Paine saw the American Revolution as a break, not just with Europe, but with the past. We have it in our power to begin the world all over, he wrote. I write this book uplifted by the fact that America has outdone the grandest notions of its founders. Yet I worry that we might unknowingly forfeit this legacy of who we are. I hope as you read these chapters you will grasp the stakes. We Americans learn early these notions from our shared past. If we're lucky, they never leave us. They are what make us and our country great. The purpose of this book is to remind us of that single splendid fact.